0: If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hello. I am not Spock. But if I were, I would tell you to listen to the Inglorious Trexpert's in which our Trek experts talk Trek every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and live long and whatever. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't already picked up the hardcover edition of the 50-Year Mission, it's time for you to go out and get the paperback version of the 50-Year Mission, which is just out in paperback from St. Martin's Press. This is the complete oral history of Star Trek, the first 25 years, from me and Ed Gross. And if you think you know everything there is to know about Star Trek, think again. The 50-Year Mission is... Out in paperback now. And if you can't read, the audiobook is still available. Hi, this is uh, not Sean Connery, because uh, if it were, I would be extremely old. Uh, But uh, if you'd like to listen to podcasts about your favorite movies that you have never seen yet, uh, join us for the 4.30 movie, and perhaps we'll have another Bond week. Electric Now? What does that mean? It means that you can watch us do these wonderful podcasts and so many other things too hey uh, Darren When I was a kid I used to love the electric company you know why because I knew one day Morgan Freeman would be a great actor but (laughs) if there's one thing I love about electricity that's even better than Schoolhouse Rock and the electric company it's the electric now channel but also they're turning it on and bringing the power Yes, they are, <laughs> and we're turning you on. And no, 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 no. that's a highly inappropriate. All. Okay, well, we <laughs> are turning on the power here at Electric Surge, where you may have for the last year or so been enjoying these amazing audio podcasts, like Inglorious Trexperts, the 4:30 Movie, best movies never made. Now you, you can watch. You them. ain't seen nothing yet, no, but you you now seen you anything. can. <laughs> you can on electric now available on stir TV and distro TV which you can download from your favorite app store and soon coming to the electric now app get to see us as you've never seen us before (laughs) because you have only seen us in the theater of the imagination now we're gonna be on your tablet on your telephone on your TV and in your house (laughs) the call is coming from inside the house so make sure to check out electric now Streaming now on STIR TV and Distro TV and coming soon to the Electric Now app.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Rebel and the Rogue. I am your host, Jason Tobias. Today, we have an amazing guest. We have writer Craig Miller, and his new book is coming out, is out, excuse me, Star Wars Memories, My Time in the Death Star Trenches. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the uh, show. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. I was able to get into the book last night and just started going through this this uh, this journey that you had, not only with coming up through the fandom, going through, like, the science fiction societies that you were a part of, and then being a part of Star Wars. I mean, coming out of college at UCLA, what was that like?
0: You know, it was um, amazing. I, You know, I was a – as a kid, I was a science fiction fan and comic book fan and movie fan and, you Mm -hmm. know, just generally nerdy, and to suddenly find myself – I graduated college and – Two months later, I was working full time at Lucasfilm. And for the year before that, I was a consultant to Lucasfilm on on fandom and marketing Star Wars. This was 1976 before Mm -hmm. Star Wars came out. And it was like, you know, for a, a... A nerdy fan. And it was just incredible to be, you know, I I keep calling it a kid in a candy store sort of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And just for everybody out there, you know, this is pre-social media. This is pre-everybody connecting and having groups that they can go to. So it really was your neighborhood. It was the societies and the clubs that you were a part of. Absolutely. You know, can you talk a little bit about... um, uh, the L.A.S.F.S., the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society that you're right. a part of.
0: Well, L.A. Science Fantasy Society was founded in, I think, 1934. So it's like the oldest still existing science fiction club. And it does still exist. Still operating. Still operating. Okay. Um, And it's had a lot of people like Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury who were members. Ray, in fact is the one who told me about the club and said, you should join this club. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. I did. Um, and, you know, the clubs are local, um, but the conventions are, as we know, are worldwide. They weren't worldwide then. They were mostly regional, I guess. Um, there was a convention called WesterCon. And that was you, centered
2: to kind of the West Coast, right?
0: Yeah, WesterCon was a Western area, West Coast. Um, science fiction convention, and then there was Worldcon, the World Science Fiction Convention. And in the mid-70s, well, in the 70s is when Comic-Con started. Hmm. All of these were much smaller then than they are today.
2: Not 200,000 people going to San Diego? Not
0: 200,000, no. (laughs) Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con in the mid-70s was 5,000 people. Wow. You know, it's uh, if, if you've been to Comic-Con, you know the main ballroom holds 6,000 people, mm-hmm. which is more than we're coming to Comic-Con at that time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I imagine it probably looked a lot like Artist Alley as opposed to what it is oh. now where it's just like a media extravaganza. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. There's tables with, you know, dealers, some of whom had comic shops. A lot of them were individuals. Mm-hmm. There weren't
2: corporations showing up. Um, setting up massive booths experiences yeah. you could be a part of and all that yeah it's yeah. really yeah. Uh, i've even heard that comic-con is talking about extending over two weekends now because some of the purists are thinking that they want to get back to the roots of having it be about the comics yeah. one weekend and the culture and then the next weekend have it be about film television and media that seems like a long time you yeah know, um, to spend I, down
0: there i i don't know if that'll happen no? I don't know if that'll happen, but you never know. Yeah. You never know.
2: Very true. I want to ask you something about Ray Bradbury. So oh, there, yeah. was a, there was an interesting part in your book. I just read his book, The Toy and Bee Converter, by the way. Great book, great little short stories. Um, but you said that when you met him, or excuse me, you reached out to him, and you went in and you just wanted to go talk to him, and he was kind enough to offer, you know, to yeah. sit down with you for about a half hour, but then that turned into what? Two hours or so. I'd say that was yeah, a good Yeah, I,
0: I mean, uh, Ray, um, I met um I wrote him a letter when I was 13 and asked if I could come interview him um, along with my two cousins. And he said, sure. He was a very open guy. This was 1968. Okay. Or actually, yeah, 1968. Um, he was very open. He was very supportive of young people who were interested in science fiction and comics. He was very supportive of writers. He had writing groups who he worked with, even though he was very well established even by then. Had he done the Martian Chronicles by that point? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, But he um, said, sure, we could come, that he could give us half an hour. Yeah. And that half hour turned into like two hours. Great. And um, while we didn't become friends at that point, because I was 13, Yeah. we continued a relationship and became friends over the years so we were still we were still friends when ray passed away a few years ago
2: awesome that's a great story i mean when i read that that was just a part of your book that i thought any time a young fan of anything no matter what it is gets to meet someone that is obviously oh, yeah. established in the industry it reinforces that what you're doing, that there's a tribe for you out there, that people like the same thing that you like. And
0: you know, and that's one of the things about the the clubs and the conventions, even today, mm-hmm. is that you're you're being able to spend time with people who like the same things you do. Yeah, and you can meet a lot of professionals and um, who will mostly give you encouragement to keep working and keep trying. And um, that sort of thing. I mean, i I got to know lots and lots of names, science fiction writers, comic book artists, comic book writers, who and today we're still friends. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's a it's a fairly welcoming thing. I mean, in a show like San Diego Comic Con, where you got 150,000 people, a lot of people's guards are up because you never know who's going to be there and there are so many people demanding your time but if you can get a chance to talk to people they're all pretty good and pretty open and yeah it's welcoming
2: imper- it's imperative too just in growth especially not only in the entertainment industry but as an artist to expand your network and oh, people yeah, that absolutely. are working and people that you can riff with and vibe with and you can you know bounce ideas off of and you know it just helps it really yeah. really helps yeah and the internet today is a big
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, in that regard, you you know, it's easier to deal with people when you can see them face to face. But right. still, you can meet people and get to know them through the Internet. So I, I, I think there's some really good parts to the Internet. Some not so good, but
2: we'll get into those. We'll OK, get, but let's talk about another person that had an impact on your life. Charlie Lippincott. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, Charlie and what I really enjoyed about your book was. You know, I've been going to conventions and comic cons since I was very young. I got exposed to the comic culture, late 80s, early 90s. So when I was reading these stories and I would go to these comic shops, I would see these amazing artists. You know, I always felt that People come for the art, they stay for the story. That's what I always felt. If yeah. you're engaged with like a, a killer splash cover, if you got some really nice art on the front sheet, you're going to get in there, unless you just like a storyline, then you yeah. follow. But um, in your book, you talk about this kind of grassroots thing that you were doing with Star Wars, and you were going around, but talk about how you met Charlie Lippincott and well, who he was as well. Okay, Charlie,
0: um, Charlie was a, a publicist in motion pictures. Um, he'd worked with Hitchcock... He'd worked with a lot of different, you know, companies, big studios, um, and he was another one of the USC mafia that George <laughs> surrounded <like> that. <laughs> himself with, the people who were at USC yeah. Film School at the same time he was, um, and Charlie had come on to be the publicist on Star Wars. Um, his title was something like vice president of publicity advertising licensing and merchant it just went on and on yeah, he yeah. was basically in charge of everything that wasn't actually making the movie okay so um, and it was a time when science fiction was not popular We forget that today because every other movie is science fiction or superheroes. Mm-hmm. But in the 70s, science fiction was not well thought of. Um, It was thought of as a a genre where the movies were cheap and made for kids and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. There were very few A-level science fiction movies. You know, 2001 and 1968, Silent Running, Planet of the Apes. But even as the Planet of the Apes series continued, it kind of degenerated. Yeah. Um, but so it wasn't well uh, well thought of. So he couldn't really market it to the general public as come see science fiction. And there weren't any named stars in it. Yeah. Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing were well known in England, but not in the U.S. Um, Mark, Carey, Harrison, not well known. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, you weren't going to get them booked on the Tonight Show. Right. Um, so, he had to come up with ways to market the movie that were not the typical ways.
2: And what what were some of those ways, just that you could explain to the well, fans? Well, typically,
0: I mean, one was getting your stars booked on talk shows like the Tonight Show, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the Today Show, all all the different talk and talk news shows. Some of which we still have now. We have lots of the talk shows; they're all comedy yeah. political shows. Yeah. But you know, the Tonight Show still exists, and so that was a big way to market it to get um, articles and magazines back when we still had big magazines. Right. But Time magazine is still around, you know. Um, I don't think people had started in 76. It might have just started. Um, but those kinds of things, you would get those articles, and you try to get articles in newspapers. Mm. But they mm. mostly were tied to personalities, tied to stars. Yeah. So if you didn't have stars, it was hard to get traction to get coverage. Interesting. So Charlie came up with a couple of things. One was to go to the fans, who are the target audience for this movie, um, and go directly to them Mm -hmm. and try to build up a grassroots interest.
2: Yeah, and I loved it. The way you explained in the book, I loved it because personally, you know, when you think of Star Wars as a brand, it's global now. It's ridiculous to even think in my mind that at one point... Nobody knew who Darth Vader was. Like, I mean, he's probably one of the top 10 most iconic images on the planet. If you showed Vader to somebody anywhere, they'd be like, oh, Darth Vader. But there was a time where you had to go to people and sell the idea to them.
0: Absolutely. And Charlie went around, came up with the idea of going to fans. One of the ways I got involved, he had come to the WesterCon um, in July... uh, July 4th weekend of 1976 to start marketing the film to fans. And that's where he and I met and I started consulting with him on other places and ways to take the film to fandom. Yeah. Um, And so it was done by going to conventions and WesterCon, San Diego Comic Con, the World Science Fiction Convention, that sort of thing. He also... Came up with the idea of trying to sell licensing, which was not a big deal back then, uh, but trying to sell licensing and trying to get it out early so it would be in front of people. Mm -hmm. The novel of Star Wars, the comic Alan Dean Foster, correct? Alan Dean Foster wrote it. It came out under George's name, but Alan Dean Foster wrote it.
2: By the way, I love Splinter of the Mind's Eye. I I thought it was a a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the book. It's
0: a good book. Um, Alan wrote that as well um, it was intended to be the sequel right in case right if Star Wars had not done well or hadn't had done okay but yeah. not big it did okay and they could try to make a second movie at a lower budget level uh, Splinter in the Mind's Eye was des- was written d- with the thought in mind a cheaper version of Star Wars less expensive to make not right. cheap but yeah yeah Jungle uh, Planet. And so but when Star Wars was huge, they no longer needed to do a cheaper version, so Empire came about.
2: Yeah. So when when Charlie met you, you essentially became his boots on the ground guy.
0: Yeah. That's, that's how I, was, I
2: took it in the book. Like, you know, he saw that you were a conduit to this this subculture, if you will, and yeah. he saw that you really had a grip on the fandom. You had a grip on what fans he, were looking for. He talked for. with
0: other people as well, um, but I I guess continued as a consultant, and then when there was more money coming in, I was brought in full-time as a staff member under the director of fan relations title.
2: Awesome. You talk about a point in the book where... I don't know if it was prior to the release or after the film had been shot. It was in post, and Charlie brought, I believe, Gary and Mark to a convention, and they had the oh. triangle logos on the shirts at that point. Oh yeah, so that were... was
0: that was um, I think September, early September of 1976, before okay. the movie came out, and that was to the World Science Fiction Convention. The World Science Fiction Convention travels; it's in a different city every year, and that year it was in Kansas City, Missouri. And they set up a, they got a room from the hotel, um, a f- small function room, and set up an exhibit. And there's some photos in the book of the exhibit. Yeah, great shots. Um some costume pieces, R2-D2, Darth Vader. Which were said that they were replicas, but they were not, right? Gary Kurtz was afraid that people might take them if they thought they were something from a movie. Even though though no one had ever seen the movie, no one was like a big Star Wars collector, if they thought they were from a movie, it was more likely someone might try to take them. So he had all the signs say replica. Ah. But there was no money to make replicas for display purposes. They were... Actually, film used material. So there were props, there were costumes, there were a lot of photos, there were Macquarie paintings. Those were photographs, yeah. you know, high quality prints. They weren't the original paintings, um, and those were on display throughout the convention. Um, and Charlie was there and Mark Hamill and Mark was you know no one knew who Mark was he right. was he'd had a a small tv career at that point but he wasn't a star so he was just a guy in the room answering questions for people and then um um one of the days of the convention there was the panel you mentioned which was Charlie and Gary and Mark and first Charlie did a slide presentation of images from the film that had been shot at that point and Macquarie paintings. Mm -hmm. And then the three of them took questions from the audience.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine sitting in a room because something that stands out as well that I read was the science fiction community can be a little tough sometimes obviously they're very versed in whatever they study and whatever they you know they find whether you're an aliens guy a star wars guy a blade runner guy whatever it might be right so i thought it was interesting when you said that some people were very accepting but some people were very snarky too at the same time yeah
0: the um you can actually find this panel online on youtube Mm. um it was an early video recording and it's been uh, maintained and now it's up on youtube so you could see the three of them being do, doing the panel and answering questions. And there's a definite people in the audience who are really like not buying s- it, not buying it because <laughs> most of the science fiction movies are bad. And this yeah. was Hollywood coming and, you know, and that kind of thing. And they they weren't going to be snowed. But yeah. it turned out they discovered that Gary actually knows science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very well read in science fiction. And he was able to talk about, you know, well, this, you know, there are reminiscences of this writer and that book and, you know, that kind of thing and talk about how they weren't trying to be hard science fiction. Mm -hmm. Although that wasn't a a term then they weren't trying to be um, super scientific. This was more science fantasy. And the audience warmed up a lot i think to the fact that this was someone who knew science fiction who was the producer of the movie and they weren't trying to put anything through they were actually just trying to tell about this movie that they made yeah um and by the end of it and this is what we found with all of the convention presentations is that people came in skeptical and went out going you know, this sounds pretty good. It's gonna be awesome. If they can really pull it off, then. You know, it might be good. Yeah. And and that was the end result of that panel. But yeah, if you if you watch it on YouTube, you can you can hear in the questions from people that they're really
2: suspicious of this. They're on the edge. They're like, I don't yeah. know if this Star Wars thing's gonna be a hit. Yeah, I
0: mean, they show they <laughs> they were interested enough to show up for the panel. So. That's good.
2: That's good. The tough part's getting them in the door, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I just, when I was reading that part, I just immediately get thrown into these situations where whether it's going to a WonderCon, a Comic-Con, Emerald City, and, you know, you're hearing about a new trailer drop or something like that. And then immediately, you know, you're reaching out to your friends. Hey, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And, of course, everybody's got that one friend. Immediately, it's picking it apart. Oh, you yeah. You know, there's an issue with it. Oh, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, dude, does it yeah. look like you're having fun with it? Like, are you interested to see it at all? But it's yeah. just, it's in the community. Yeah,
0: and, you know, it, it always gets me when people start knocking trailers. I mean, some trailers yeah. are terrible. But it's like you really don't know what a movie is like from the trailer Mm -hmm. it gives you a general sort of sense about it but to decide well this shot means that this is going to happen like no yeah Uh, yeah. you know that you really don't know where it's going to go you can't tell anything for sure about the plot of a movie from a trailer you can get a sense of what you think might happen
2: right right i mean they're just trying to get people excited you know yeah um the Howard Shaken poster, the yeah. promo poster. Really cool poster. Uh you're obviously a comic guy, you know, and that yeah. is an illustrated poster. It's not a photo reel poster. Yeah. You know, that was a poster that I remember seeing even when I was younger, I grew up late eighties, early nineties, I had the Drew Struzan style D poster. Oh yeah, the yeah.
0: Oh so that's a great poster.
2: Yeah, I, I love that. I've got a reprint of it now in my room. You know, it's in my office, I keep it close to the desk, it's inspiration, yeah. it's up there. And I've also got the Revenge of the Jedi up there as well before they changed it to Return. Right. But um yeah, that, I mean, that Chaikin poster was just like, it was really cool to me because when I saw it as a kid, it immediately reminded me of comics. My mind immediately went to comics. And then, can you go into a little bit of like what was going on with Star well, Wars trying to get the word out in the comic well, industry? Well, it was,
0: it was a, a, you know, one of a number of things, lots of throw it at the wall, see if it sticks kind of thing. Um, and Howard, he was Howie then, but Howard, um, was the, was doing the original Marvel comics, the first run of Marvel comics. He was the artist, um, with Roy Thomas as the writer. Um, but Charlie wanted to do this series of mini posters. They weren't full size movie posters, but they were, maybe the size of a half sheet or something. Um, and, it was supposed to be a series of posters and Howard did the first one and it looks sort of like the cover of the first comic mm-hmm. um, similar. Yeah. And of course the style is similar because it's Howard um, who did both of them and it came out and it was it was produced and it says on it number one of a series but there was never a number two. Um, and they were being where wherever Charlie would do a a presentation or a thing, there was a table, and you could buy these posters for a dollar seventy five mm-hmm. and a lot of people did, and we also gave out a bunch of them over time um, and now it's one of the most expensive posters on the poster collector Star Wars fan market. It's now like Two, three thousand dollars. Wow! Because a lot of people, you know, didn't keep them because they came out before the movie came out. Right. And it's been forty some years, so things get beat up. Yeah, they're probably uh, rare. I oh, mean, they've yeah, got to so be a rare item. So now they're quite rare. Um, it and the um, birthday poster from the, with the one figures? year anniversary with the, the cake? figures around the cave yeah. um, are the, as far as I know, the two most expensive Star Wars posters.
2: Wow! Yeah, I would have. Uh... I would have assumed, you know, like maybe some of the early uh, 77 stuff that was coming out. But when you think about it, just the limited amount that were created. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. There weren't
0: that many of them. And the birthday posters were created um, for the theaters that had been running Star Wars continuously for a year. Mm -hmm. And there were only, I've, I've got the number in my book, and we talk about that poster. It's like 35 or 50 theaters had been running it continuously for a year. Um, and so there were only, um, no one remembers exactly, but there were like maybe 500 of these printed total. Wow, and a small number. And you know, relative to how many are usually made for a movie. Um, and most of them were sent out to theaters, so that meant a lot of them ended up in the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them went to fan home you know the fans who either worked in the theaters who said oh can i have that poster when you're done with it um, which have which is how a lot of posters end up in the collector market um but there weren't that many to start with so it it, it's a very rare poster i don't think it's a particularly attractive poster but because it's you know it's the cake yeah with the um what were then Kenner action figures around it, right? Um, and it's okay, but you know it's not the most beautiful Star Wars poster. That D style um, huge fan is 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 a gorgeous poster. Yeah. Um. But any anyway, so those two are the most expensive on the collector market now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean the poster, and again, just for anybody that's listening, that. This was a time when your poster was how you were getting the word out. I mean, you were either taking out ads in newspapers, you were getting into magazines, you were doing radio spots. But your poster was what people would see when they would come to a theater that would make you want to get engaged with a film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was the the poster at the theaters, which you would get up, you know, weeks in advance of like standees. Now uh, today mm-hmm. you see them all over in theaters. You you would have posters up early, and that would be your what was called key art. And so it would be the same art in the ads in the newspapers, which were enormously important. That's how people found movies. You opened up your local paper and yeah. you saw the ads um, for what was there, and you looked at that key art. And if you had a budget for, um, you know, TV commercials, they were your, you would see sort of a mini version
2: of the trailer and that key art again would come up. Yeah. Craig, I remember a time <laughs> that I used to have to call the movie theater to get movie times. You know, oh, yeah. the, the pre-smartphone, you know, you had to call a the movie theater up, wait through the whole spiel just to find out if your movie was playing at a certain time. I mean, Right.
0: And, and with multiplexes, that became really a nightmare Yeah. because it wasn't just listening to the one movie. It's like, in theater
2: one, we're yep. showing
0: this <laughs> and it'll be on at...
2: Yeah. It keeps going, man. Yeah. It's, it's a completely different world. And I can oh, only yeah. imagine, you know... Um, we can get to this later when we talk about it, but just what we have now at our disposal with social media compared to what oh, yeah. was going on then. I mean, oh, it it's just a completely
0: different universe.
2: Yeah, it doesn't even seem like they even connect in a way because how do you roll out something like Star Wars? at that time, which what, what it turned into, and then what would be a marketing plan now? I mean, like you would just be. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, obviously movies now market through the internet Mm -hmm. far more than anywhere else. You still do TV commercials. You still book people on to talk shows. um, And you still try to get, you know, to be in people magazine and rolling stone and the few magazines that are meaningful. Um, But, you know, now it's you start build you. You did one of the things Charlie was doing, and that we continue to do, is you start building interest as much as a year in advance. Yeah. With posting stuff to the internet early, early photos. Oh look, we're sneak. Here's the first photo to drop of this character in a costume. And, right.
2: Right. You know. Um, Give them a taste. Give him a taste. Like, hey, this is really cool. You might want to check it out.
0: Yeah. On, on Lord of the Rings, they were doing that director's blog. And so while yeah. he was shooting, every day or every couple of days, he'd shoot like two or three minutes of stuff to go online to start building up interest. And, of course, you've got it being the lord of the rings so there's a lot of interest in that title already yeah but so you know sometimes when you're using a known property that helps because there's already interest in it but then you got to be careful you don't antagonize the people who love that um property um going oh you're going to ruin it and of course everyone always in that's the other thing you get. That guy who picks apart the trailer is yep. the one who say, oh, they're going to screw it up and ruin it um, because, oh, you cast this guy. How could they cast this guy There's in that, that part? Person.
2: There's always that person.
0: It's like you, you never know. I mean, when they <laughs> announced... Um, the casting on Batman, and I'm somebody... Ben Affleck when they ca- or no 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 Robert the, Pattinson the latest one no 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 the first one the first... Oh, Christian
2: Bale or Michael Keaton Michael Keaton there we I go I blanked on his that's name that's all right
0: my thought was you know we'll wait and see but he's probably going to be great as Bruce Wayne and terrible as Batman yeah and I was I was surprised because I thought he was great as Batman but only okay as Bruce Wayne yeah but you know the things you never know because you got to wait to see the performance
2: true. Quick story on that, I can throw in there. So apparently Warner Brothers at the time, they tapped Tim Burton to want to make the film. And Tim Burton wanted to bring Michael Keaton on and Warner's immediately said no. So they said, the only way you can bring Michael Keaton on is if you get a star to play the Joker. He ended up getting Jack Nicholson, they gave him Michael Keaton. So that's how that was turned up. Initially, they wanted Bill Murray to play Batman. Could you imagine Bill Murray playing Bruce Wayne? That would be a really different (laughs) movie. I don't even know. Yeah, that would be something else. But back to Star Wars. Yeah the film comes out it explodes people are waiting in line you know this is something that nothing had really the people weren't waiting in line to see movies right oh no
0: no that never that never i mean people might show up and have to wait yeah. oh 20 minutes for the next movie to start kind of thing no one stood in line and and even for star wars people weren't waiting in line for days but they were coming and standing in line you know, the next showing is at one. They were standing in line for the four o'clock show, or they were standing in line at one for the seven o'clock show, mm-hmm. which did not happen. And in fact, that helped make the movie a success because that never happened. So newspapers and TV news was covering the fact that people were standing in line for four hours, six hours to get in to see Star Wars. So suddenly there's all this news coverage and people who had no idea what the movie was are like, hmm, this must be something special. I should go see this movie.
2: Yeah. I mean, what's what's the most infectious thing? Word of mouth. You know, yeah, when people start talking. Absolutely. And you've got a great piece in your book about, I think you're driving past the Egyptian. And oh, yeah. And there was a woman standing outside. And I think you stopped and just talked to her. Can you yeah. go into that?
0: Yeah. This was for Empire Strikes Back. Okay. And it was going to be opening on, um, I think it was it was opening Wednesday night. And this was Monday morning, and I was driving in to work at Lucasfilm, and my route to work took me past the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. And there were, in fact, four people standing in line. And this was, you know, 8.30 in the morning, and there's no <laughs> movies playing at the Egyptian at 8.30 in the morning. Right. And I was like, but there was the huge um, Empire Strikes Back Sort of billboard built on top of the Egyptian for that, and I I was curious, so I stopped. I parked and stopped and went over and found out that they were in line to see Empire on Wednesday. They want to be the first people in mm-hmm. to see it, and they they were not all there together. They had all they had two of them were together, and the others were two individuals, and they just shown up. And we formed a line to do it. And so I talked to them and I thought, well, we could get some good press out of this. So I told them that I, you know, I, I introduced myself and gave them my card and told them that if they didn't mind, I was going to let some reporters know and maybe, you know, get interviewed about why they're there so early. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, and I went off to work and I told everybody and everyone was excited. And I'd called some reporters, um, local, you know, L.A. area reporters. And then I got a phone call from, from this woman, her name was Terry Harden, um, that the manager of the theater wanted to throw them out. He didn't <sighs> like them being in line and cluttering up the,
2: his theater. These era. hooligans that want to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, they want, to, they want to pay us money. Right, exactly.
0: And so I said, I'll take care of it. And I called him up and he was just so full of himself. He, he wouldn't even tell me his first name. Ah. He was Mr. Of course. Uh, whatever. And... Mr. Um, I'll throw you out. And he did not want these people. The Egyptian had a, had a courtyard in the front. It was the box office and a courtyard. And then behind the courtyard mm. was where the theater was. Um, and it was, you know, built by Sid Grauman, who did Grauman's Chinese. So it was that sort of same shape. Um. And he was going to throw them out. And I told him, I, I, I had introduced myself already. And I told him, no, we want them there. And the press are coming and not to touch them. And he said, no, they're cluttering up his courtyard. And he wasn't going to stand for it. And I said, I'm going to have someone from, it was Mann Theatres, um, Mann Theatres talk to you. And I called the um, regional vice president at Mann Theatres. Uh, and told him what was going on, and he called the manager and told him to shut up. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) And leave these people alone. Yeah, yeah. And so the line grew. The press went out and covered it. Mm -hmm. And he was such a fool that... the. The local businesses in Hollywood, as long as they left a gap in front of their doors, were right. fine. They were coming out and selling these people sandwiches and drinks. Generating business. Yeah. And they were like, here's people standing in line. They got nothing to do here. And, you know, and they're going to want a drink. They're going to want dinner. Right. He could have made money selling them concessions. Yeah. He didn't want that. He just ignored them. And, you know, but they they got in. They were the first people to see it. We were there for it. We um, the movie opened at midnight Wednesday, which is actually Tuesday night, Mm -hmm. I guess. I may be I may have this off a day in in which day of the week. But um, so it was opening at midnight with a 1201 showing. And so we were there from my my uh, associates from Lucasfilm and I were there from the late afternoon on um, going up and down the line, talking to people, giving out may the force be with you buttons and yeah. there were people in line for the midnight show, the two thirty or three o'clock, whatever the next show was. And even some people were there for the, the six A. M. show. I don't you know, whatever the times were. Mm-hmm. And we all went in for the first showing. At midnight and we stood in the back and it was great because, you know, the audience, of course. the audience. I mean, first, it's a great movie, but this audience was super primed for it. And they were cheering and they were applauding and they were having a great time. And then I stayed for the start of the next showing three or whatever. And the first 20 minutes, the audience was still reacting the same way maybe a little more sleepy, but. Right, right,
2: they're still there.
0: <laughs> but they were still there, and then I was, the next morning in Westwood at the Avco, um, Was it's, they didn't start at midnight, they started in the morning, and so I was there for, it was like an 8 a.m. or a 9 a.m. show. So I went to work the line um, for that morning
2: show, and the audience had a great time for that, so we were really happy. That's awesome. Question, I, I, I gotta know, you're at the 12-on-1 screening, this is at the egyptian correct the premiere of that yes. empire you've got that iconic twist that happens in the film where vader reveals to luke that he's his father what did the crowd do at that time like what, what was it like watching and or listening to that reaction
0: you know the the audience listens and they're sort of they sort of act like luke does. Like no.
2: <laughs> do they do the they're, no?
0: They're, well they don't they don't do the no although um, there were a few people doing that. Mostly there was sort of a gasp. OK, um, that's what I assume. And and a lot of people looking at the person they're with at in surprise and then looking back at the screen. And, yeah. and you know, it, it was a big surprise for lots of people. Oh, yeah.
2: I, I, I mean, that's in when you think of like film twists uh, throughout history. That's one that always kind of pops up, you know, yeah. the, the reveal of Darth Vader. Yeah,
0: And we we did our best to keep it a secret. The people are. Uh, Almost nobody's copy of the script had that page hmm. with the reveal. Even the guys w- shooting the film, most of them did not know what was going to happen in that
2: scene. Amazing. That's I mean that's keeping it under wraps. I'll tell you what. Um back to Star Wars real of quick. Of course it'd
0: be harder today with the internet. Oh, spoilers back, everywhere. Yeah, back then, you know, you just kept the number of people down and mostly you could keep secrets.
2: Yeah, it's it's tough. The internet man, it just it yeah. lets them fly. Um, but back to Star Wars when it released in 77, another part that I read that was really interesting was that you were starting to see people that wanted to experience the film in better quality, you know, oh, and yeah. they were going, they were actively seeking out theaters that had 70 mil projectors and most
0: yeah, didn't. The, uh, today, we get really high quality theaters, you know, they're all got good quality projection, good quality sound, and that's a big deal. In the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, the quality of theaters kind of ran down. Um, A lot of the theater managers, theater owners didn't take good care of the theaters. You had, you know, bad screens, bad sound, that sort of thing. And George was very... Finicky about it. a lot of filmmakers were, but that's why, you know, the film was 70 millimeter. It was, it was in Dolby. It was, there was a mono version. There was a Dolby stereo. There was a 12 track Dolby stereo mm-hmm. mixes and each mix was different because George couldn't stop fiddling with it. So oh, yeah. Depending what theater you were in, you might have heard some lines of dialogue differently and different sound effects. But anyway, so in some of the theaters it opened in, it was in 70 millimeter. Most theaters couldn't project 70 millimeter. And people wanted to see Star Wars, this is gratifying, in the highest quality version they could. So it was discovered that people were driving... essentially past theaters that had it in 35 to get to theaters that had it in 70. Mm -hmm. So a lot of theaters installed 70 millimeter projectors during their run of Star Wars, more than made up the cost of the new projectors. Obviously, they still had the 35s as well. um, But they now had 70 capability because they made up, that money in selling tickets for Star Wars. Yeah. Um, It really had an effect on the, and changed um, exhibition in this country. And they started paying more attention in general to the quality of the exhibition. That's why you see theaters spending money on things like upgrading their
2: sound and upgrading their projection. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've always said this amongst friends in the filmmaking community, is that Star Wars, in my opinion, you know, essentially... Revolutionize the way that the blockbuster is presented to people. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, when you have the consumer actively seeking out the best quality to simply yeah. to to be immersed in the experience, you know you've got something that is engaging. You know, oh, yeah. You know that. And I even do that with my filmmaking buddies. You know, we will drive to certain theaters that have better projection systems and better sound systems, especially oh, sure. if the film is catered towards that delivery system, you know? Oh, yeah.
0: We're, we're kind of blessed here in, in L.A. that we have a lot of
2: great yeah. quality theaters. Yeah, yeah, we really do. We really do. Um, the, one thing that just screams in your book, Craig, and, you know, I I, I love this about it, you really are a fan of the fans, and you oh, know yeah, that, that's yeah, yeah, something absolutely. that it, you can read it on the page. You hear it when you're talking. Uh, you read it, and you can just really get it. it. That's would you would you say that it's part of just coming from the community itself? Well, I think I think that's part of it. Um, certainly, you know, the, these are
0: my people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, George and Gary Kurtz and Charlie Lippincott, we're not part of fandom. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all read comics um to a greater or lesser extent. They all read science fiction um so they were you know, they were fans of the genres, but they weren't part of fandom, but they also had a caring for how we treated the fans. That's why when we did the fan club, when we did all of these activities, yes, yeah, sure it's part of there's a financial aspect in that keeping people interested means they'll keep interested. They'll keep mm-hmm. coming to see mm-hmm. movies. They might buy merchandise. So there is a financial aspect to it. But by treating the fans as real people, as people you care about, I mean, it shows respect for them, which, mm-hmm. which we all had. It's like the fan club was a money-losing proposition. Mm-hmm. You know, We charged people five bucks to join the fan club you know, that had to pay my salary. It had to pay for the production and mailing of the newsletters, plus the membership kit that they got when they joined. The first membership kit, among other things, We had an original Ralph McQuarrie painting done to be a poster that we sent out. Can you go into that real quick, brother? Because I love the story in the book. Oh, it's a great story. Well, I mean, we we wanted we we wanted to do something special, Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to do a poster, and Ralph's artwork was, you know, the quintessential. The view of Star Wars. But static. A lot of his shots are very static. A lot of his shots are very static. I, I designed the, the poster and basically, and, and Ralph's artwork tends to be static because he isn't doing artwork for the masses, he's doing designs for people to work from.
2: Scenes, layout, production yeah, design.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So... Really, to to an extent, what I did is I said, Ralph, here's this great painting you did, which is the uh, TIE Fighters and X-Wings in the Trench. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's turn it around. So instead, because in in his painting, they're all going away from us. Right. I said, let's turn it around and have it all coming towards us and let's have Luke's uh, X-wing flying off the page.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great design, Craig. It's and, fun, and
0: it, you know, and and you know, and Ralph, who was a terrific guy, um, I liked him a lot. Um, really, didn't need me to design a poster, but he was very gracious about my saying, "Let's do it this way," mm-hmm. and that's exactly what he did. And so, we, so we did an original uh, Ralph McQuarrie painting. We had to pay Ralph for the artwork. We mm-hmm. printed this qual- high quality. Poster. I mean, it's not like art museum quality posters, but it was a good quality printing. We had a couple of color photos. We had patches. Yeah, there was an embroidered patch. There was the triangle Mm -hmm. peel and stick sticker. That was the original company
2: logo for... The movie. And that was the original design for Han Solo on the sticker, right? Yeah,
0: on the sticker, it's the most people think it's Luke, but it was an early design for Han Solo. Mm. His character changed over time. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um and so there was all this stuff. So it cost us more than five bucks just to send them the membership kit, let alone everything else. Um but it was we wanted to do something. We'd yeah. we you know, we'd interviewed There are companies that do fan mail processing and fan clubs for, you know, rock stars and actors and that kind of thing. And we talked to them. I talked to half a dozen different companies and we didn't like what they were producing. The quality of the stuff they were sending out was poor. They weren't really, it was all pretty generic Um, and it was more, we're collecting you know, they they were harvesting addresses to mail out right. advertising kind of thing. Yeah. And we didn't want that. So we brought in a staff to handle all of the fan mail that came in. And I wrote um, a dozen different form letters that went out depending on what people asked in their fan mail. All the actors got their mail, but stuff to... To Lucasfilm or 20th Century Fox or Star Wars, the characters, or, right? The characters. Or, or, or to with the you. characters, yeah. to Darth Vader or C-3PO, we processed and responded to all of that mail. And when I was, ri- I wrote all the issues of the newsletter for the fan club, Bantha Tracks, Bantha Tracks, mm-hmm. um, for the th- first like first three years when I was still there. Um, and I wrote articles that I thought, what would I want to know if I was a fifteen-year-old, not in the movie business, about making Star Wars and about and eventually about making Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. So those were those kind of articles that we were doing, um, things that we really thought people would be interested in, not you know little puff pieces or anything else. So right. we really tried to give the fans stuff we thought they would want and what they like. And I've At the time, you know, we never really heard back much because without the Internet, you don't have that kind of immediate response. But I'm hearing in the last several years when I go out to conventions and stuff from people who tell me they were members back then. They were kids and they loved Bantha tracks. They still have their Bantha tracks, some of them, and they really enjoy. They were getting information they couldn't get anywhere else. It's like that's really gratifying to know that what we were trying to do, we were successful with.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's invaluable. Um, You know, when you're building a fan base for any IP or any creation or product and you want them to engage, if they feel that they are being taken care of, if they feel that people actually want their their – Resource to come in and like experience a yeah. film, they're going to engage more. They're yeah. going to get involved more. And then a little tidbit: those Darth Vader eight by tens that went out, uh-huh. there was a, a signature on there. Can you oh, can you go yeah. into that? Well, <laughs> yeah,
0: if you know when when um, Dave Prowse did personal appearances, mm. he would sign photos of Darth Vader that said "Dave Prowse is Darth Vader." He would always sign "Dave Prowse" or "David Got it. Prowse." depending on what mood he was in Um, and you know um, but if they were wrote if they if so if they went to him he signed Dave Prowse Um, when they wrote to the company and it was usually kids who would write to a character Mm -hmm. rather than to an actor and if they wrote and they asked for an autograph photo of Darth Vader they all got photo. Well, they didn't all get. It depended on and the letter and stuff. But mostly they would get photos. And um, they wanted an autograph. So they all came out with an autograph from Darth Vader, but they're all my signature as Darth Vader.
2: <laughs> so you're so, a Darth Vader. So, uh,
0: yeah, there's, there's a short piece in the, in the uh, book that there are a lot of people who are Darth Vader. Dave Prouse mm-hmm. obviously, is Darth Vader. James Earl Jones is mm-hmm. Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of other people who can make claims to being Darth Vader. They were Darth Vader's stunt double right. or um, Bryce Eller who did all of the personal appearances like at department stores and on the Oscars and that sort of thing was Darth Vader. And I have my
2: own little claim to being Darth Vader. That's pretty cool. Not a bad thing to hang your hat on. That's not bad. But no, it really shows, Craig, in the book. because. You know, as a fan, I've engaged with things where it was G.I. Joe's in the late 80s sending away so many UPC codes and you get a special oh, sure. figure back. Or, you know, even with like Star Wars merchandise, you would send things in and then you would get something back. Just listening to you talk about it and the way you go through it in your book, like you went even as far as to you didn't want to fold up the posters. You wanted them, you know, poster rolled. You didn't want to have those fold up mocks yeah, on the poster. Exactly. You know? Well,
0: because all of us, George, Charlie, Gary and I, you know, we all collected posters to Mm -hmm. one extent or another, and we hated the fold lines. So that's why Star Wars was the first movie where most of the posters distributed to theaters were sent out flat, not folded, Mm. because we didn't want the... Well, George originally didn't want the fold lines in the posters. And when we did the poster for the fan club, we Mm. didn't want the fold lines in it, so we deliberately printed them and they were rolled, which was another added expense. It was right. much more expensive to send out the kit in a tube than to send, to fold the poster and have everything in like a nine by 12 envelope.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it really does show Craig. I mean, this is just, these are just snippets of this book and there's so many great memories that you have in there. Something else I'd like to ask you about is, you know, you, you go into the relationship that you had working with Gary Kurtz and, you know, it sounds okay. in the book that it was, it was, very emotional, especially towards the end when um, Gary passed. You guys became yeah. close over the years. But just you you explain how there are different kinds of producers out there. Some producers are facilitators. Some producers yeah. are just kind of getting things done. They're wrangling finances, et cetera. But then some producers are filmmakers. And then yeah. you lead into that with Gary, if you'd like to talk on that yeah. a little
0: bit. Um, I mean, I've worked on a lot of movies over the years, uh, big movies, little movies, Um, You know, I worked with Jim Henson. I worked with John Carpenter. I worked with lots of different people on lots of uh, well-known movies over the years. And um, I didn't know this at the time because Star Wars was the first, you know, Mm -hmm. studio movie I ever worked on. Mm -hmm. But Gary Kurtz is unusual or was unusual now that he's passed away um, in that. He really was a knowledgeable filmmaker. He had worked a lot of these jobs. He'd been a cameraman. He'd done sound. Um, He had an engineer's mind Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of a lot. There are a lot of people who are producers who they're deal makers. Right. Um, Some of them are very talented. Some of them are very creative in terms of knowing how to put together knowing what a good script is and that sort of thing. And Gary could do all of that. But he also knew how to make movies there. production meetings where different departments say well we've got us we've got this coming up and that's going to be a problem and Gary would have an answer well we could do this we could we've got this hired so we could load that onto there or um, for the uh, climate not the climax but the finale of Star Wars the metal sequence mm. Mm-hmm. To shoot that, would, uh, in reality, would have required a tremendous number of extras, far oh, yeah. more than the film could afford. So Gary figured out and laid out on graph paper every single shot, how wide the angle would be, how many extras you would need in that shot. And it's all laid out so you, they would know exactly how many extras. And a lot of them are in multiple places because, you know, you shoot here and then you move them down and right. that kind of thing. But they knew exactly how many because he could figure that out yeah. and do that kind of thing. He really knew the mechanics of making a movie beyond the creative side, beyond the deal making side. He really was the most knowledgeable producer I ever worked with.
2: Awesome. Yeah, it just just reading that section about it because I've heard and read so many stories about, you know, hey, what would have episode six been like if Gary and George would have continued to work together, you know, what would the saga have turned into? And it just really sounds as if he was such a major part of the process, you know. I mean obviously in um film the director kind of you live and die of they take all the glory or they take all the blame, you know, but there are so many hands. Film is truly a collaborative process. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. it's a very collaborative process. Um Is there one memory? I mean, there are so so many memories in the book that stand out that I just I love talking about. But is there one memory or something that, you know, you'd love to share with us just to kind of like send us off here?
0: Well, you know, um, it's hard because there's so much, you know, having been a a fan, it was like a, a miracle thing. Uh, To just be in that place, you know, if if I hadn't been there, if I'd been a miscellaneous fan going, boy, I wish I could have been there for a day Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I was there for three years. Um, I was on the set of Empire for several weeks. I was, you know, I did a lot of things Um, in some ways. and And I go into this in the book, of course, is when we did Sesame Street, where I was producer for Lucasfilm. And also was one of the operators for R two D two, so that's mm. kind of cool being able to yeah. operate R two at all, let alone on television.
2: Was Kenny Baker there as well?
0: No, no. Uh, we had Tony Daniels in being C three PO. Okay, um, but it was just the radio controlled R two. Got it. Um, and so that was you know, it was it was Sesame Street. It was yeah. I was it was the first thing I would produced. It was you know operating R two, and on top of that. Um, which is a a personal thing, is I had met at a a convention in Chicago where I'd done a presentation. I'd met a, a woman from New York who was at the convention, who I liked, and I'd gotten her phone number and said, if I'm ever in New York... Can I call you? And she said, sure, thinking I lived in Los Angeles. I'd never be in New York. Yeah. And three weeks later, I was in New York producing Sesame Street. And I called her, and we went on a date. And 40 years later, we're still married.
2: Well, I, that is an amazing story. I love that, man. That's I mean, We didn't get married for a few years after that. That's But okay. still,
0: that was our the occasion of our first date was when I was there doing Sesame Street. Look at that. So that all, you know... So my entire life is, you know, built around
2: Star Wars in many ways. I love it. I love it. It's heartwarming. It's heartfelt. I love it. It's genuine. Craig, how can people get the book? How can they get their hands on it? What we've talked about are just snippets of great memories that you put in there.
0: Um, well, the book, Star Wars Memories, is available on um, Amazon in as paperback and uh, as an ebook. book uh, There will be an audiobook book version um, that isn't ready yet my my wife is unfortunately been quite ill with a oh I'm sorry rare nerve disease she's she's recovering but it's something that essentially paralyzed her for several weeks mm. and now she's in a recovery that will take 6 months um so the audiobook um people convinced me that I don't think I have a voice for radio, but people convince me that because these are all my stories that I tell, mm-hmm. I should do the audio book. And so we started the audio book and then my wife has been in the hospital and I've been dealing with that. So the audio book will be out hopefully in a couple of months after she's in a better state and um, I can go back to recording. The engineer is all done. Um there are four interviews in the in the book. You mentioned the one with Mark Hamill. Mm-hmm. There's also one with Harrison Ford and Tony Daniels and George Lucas. I'm not we're going to have voice actors come in to read their responses because it'd be weird for me to say, what are you doing, Mark? <laughs> well, what I'm doing. is
2: Right. Right. Of course. So
0: so those are being done as well. Excellent. Um, Excellent. And, but it, it's on Amazon. You can get it in bookstores. Uh, a lot of bookstores haven't ordered it yet. Hopefully, it'll get enough publicity and, and people requesting it. Uh, it's with a major book distributor called Ingram that all the bookstores deal with. Um, so if they want to order copies, they can through their local bookstore. Or like I said, it's available on Amazon.
2: Excellent, Craig. And are you open to fans reaching out to you? Do you have uh, handles on social media?
0: Yeah, I am not currently on Twitter because my account got hijacked and I have to start a new Twitter account. But there's a Star Wars Memories Facebook page, and I have a Facebook page. um, And people can reach out to me and contact me. I'm happy to talk to them and answer questions. I'm on a lot of Star Wars uh, fan groups Answering questions and that sort of thing. Um, So um, I'm, and I'm going to conventions. Um, I'm only going, right now I'm just booked into a couple of LA area conventions, Empire Con, which is a Star Wars con coming up here in LA the beginning of December. Uh, But I can't really travel till my wife recovers more. And then I'll start going around the country to more different conventions.
2: Understood. Well, our thoughts are with her. And Craig Miller, writer amazing human being, amazing stories. His book is out, Star Wars Memories, My Time in the Death Star Trenches. Check it out. Such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thank you,
0: Jason.